Hello and welcome to Beneath the Staircase. We are your beguiling hosts, Kelly. Hey, and I'm Kelly too. Two crazy ladies who love nothing more than to talk ghosts and everything paranormal. Join us, won't you? And now for the paranormal news. Today's paranormal news comes from Baltimore, Maryland, where a spooky picture taken at a historic building shows what appears to be a ghostly image. Eat Bertha's Muscles has been a quirky seafood joint (laughs) and tavern since 1972, known for muscles and regularly scheduled live music. And now, ghosts! An image of what appears to be a ghostly child in the third floor window was captured on a ghost tour. The third floor was been... I'm sorry. The third floor has been closed off for some time, and there is no way anyone could have been there when the photo was captured. The locals do not appear to be afraid of this ghostly apparition, as the owners of Bertha's have been in contact with several spirits, including a little girl who is often seen skipping down the hallway. We will have this image up on the site for you to see and decide for yourself. So today we're going to do something a little different. Instead of focusing just on paranormal um, events, we're going to do a Halloween special and focus on murders and true crime that happened on or uh, around Halloween over the last century. Very special. (laughs) Very special. This was, this was different for us, wasn't it? It was a little, it's a little disturbing. Yeah, this isn't going to be the same kind of episode we usually do, but there's a lot of details and it's, it's interesting. Um, but researching it wasn't as, um, as fun as you thought it would be (laughs) it's not as good as I thought it was gonna be yeah I I was a bit disturbed even like last night I had a weird dream and I think it's because of it diving (laughs) deep into these things over the last week yeah so I guess we should just get into it yeah okay so the first one we're going to talk about is the death of Peter Fabiano or also known as the trick or treat murder, but this is not a sweet tale. Um, so let's go back to the sunny suburbs of Sun Valley, California, on Octo- in October of 1957. So Peter was aged 35. He lived with his wife Betty Fabiano in a cute little house on Community Street. Betty had two children from a former marriage, and Peter was a hairdresser. Um, and uh, Peter and Betty hit a rough patch in their marriage, and they decided to take some time living apart. And during the separation, Betty lived with her friend Joan Rabel, and the two became very close. Um, Joan worked in one of Peter's salons at the time. He owned two. So they were all familiar with each other. They knew Peter knew who Joan was. So it made perfect sense for when Betty needed to be out of the house that she stayed with Betty. Sorry, when Betty needed to stay out of the house, she stayed with Joan. So... Um, what went on between these ladies during their separation? Um, a bit of research into the 1950s will tell you that it wasn't commonplace for newspapers to use the word lesbian or homosexual. Ooh, okay, girl. Yeah, they would choose to use other words. And in this particular case, the LA Times would describe the relationship between Betty and Joan as abnormal. And I'm using air quotes here. Aww. So when the time came for Betty to move back in with Peter, Peter became aware of how close the two women had become and said, and it said that he was jealous or threatened by that. And he told Betty that they could reconcile their relationship and go back to normal only if she cut off all ties and contact with Joan. 
So John, feeling like a woman scorned, moved on to befriend a woman by the name of Goldine Pizer. I'm hoping I'm saying that right, Pizer. Goldine? Goldine, G-O-L-D-Y-N-E, or Goldine. (laughs) And she was also a divorcee. And Goldine claims during this time that Joan cast a spell over her, told her tales of what an awful man Peter was to her dear friend Betty, and she convinced her that they must kill Peter. Oh, shit! Yeah. So they plotted and planned for months. And Joan provided Goldine with the money to buy a 38 Smith & Wesson. And finally, on October 31st, 1957, the two women set, sat in a car on Community Street and waited for Peter to go to bed. Mm-hmm. At 11.30, the lights went out in the Fabiano home, and the plan went into action. Goldine, dressed in blue jeans, a jacket, and a mask, approached the front door with gun in hand concealed in a paper bag. She rang the doorbell and waited. Peter assumed it was a very light, late-night trick-or-treater mm. and opened the door. And there was Goldine, who shot him, ran back to the car, and sped off into the night. Peter was left lying on the floor, where Betty found him in a pool of his own blood and a bullet in his chest just below his heart. Oh, my God. Yeah, and poor Peter died on the way to hospital, and it didn't take very long for Betty to put two and two together. Um, within two weeks, Joan was arrested, and soon after, the gun was located, which, of course, led the police to Goldine, who had bought, who had bought it. And both women were convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced five to life. Five to life? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Five years to life. Oh, my God. That's like an episode of Snapped. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I actually haven't heard of it. I mean, I've heard, I think I heard the term trick-or-treat murder, but I didn't know what it was. Um, and I think it's very interesting how they really danced around the, the subject of, you know, homosexuality and lesbian in the reports of the time. So Yeah, it's like, come on, who cares? Yeah, bit dated. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> what do you I like that. I like that before we recorded, you're like, I have a light one to start with. <laughs> Later. <laughs> okay, so oh gosh, now we're talking about Ronald Clark O'Brien. Okay, um, he was born October nineteenth, nineteen forty-four, and nicknamed the Candy Man and the mm. Man Who Killed Halloween. He was an American man convicted of killing his own eight-year-old son <laughs> on Halloween, nineteen seventy-four, with a potassium cyanide-laced pixie stick. What? After dinner on Halloween night, O'Brien and his neighbor took their children out to trick-or-treat around the neighborhood. One house along the route was dark, but the children still rang the doorbell. There was no answer, so they moved on. O'Brien lagged behind and then moments later came running up to catch catch him. He was waving five giant pixie, pixie sticks, 22-inch straws filled mm-hmm. with flavored sugar. He told the kids it was their lucky day because the rich neighbors were distributing expensive treats. Mm -hmm. Each of the three children on the walk got one pixie stick. Later, O'Brien gave the fourth to his friend's other child, a five-year-old daughter, and the final pixie stick went to a trick-or-treat visitor who rang the doorbell at his neighbor's house. Back at home in Deer Park, Texas, O'Brien told his children that they could each have a treat before bedtime. Timothy, only eight years old, chose the pixie stick, but he stopped after the first taste saying it was bitter. Timothy's dad offered him Kool-Aid to wash it down. Moments later, O'Brien heard the boy crying, Daddy! Daddy! Not long after, Timothy died. 
I know. An autopsy found enough cyanide in the boy's body to kill three grown men. After one taste. Mm Mm-hmm. Examination of the pixie stick showed that someone had opened the tube and replaced some of the candy with poison. Then the tube had been stapled shut. One of the children who had gotten a tainted pixie stick had been tempted to tempted to eat it, but fell asleep before he managed to pull out the staple. The other tubes were recovered before any child tried to eat the contents. Within days, O'Brien was under arrest for the murder of his son. It turns out that he poisoned his son in order to claim life insurance money to ease his own financial troubles as he was $100,000 in debt. He, I know. He was convicted of capital murder in June 1975 and sentenced to death. He was executed by lethal injection in March of 1984. Whoa. That's a heavy one. That is heavy. <sighs> Like, last person you would suspect, like you, you think strangers might do it, right? And that's what I but. first thought when they're like, "Oh, you know, they go to a house, mm-hmm. but you know, oh, maybe they." God, your own dad. Yeah, and then okay. poor boy calling out to him. Oh my god, <sighs> wash it down with Kool Aid. Awful. <sighs> okay. okay, what do you got next? <laughs> Moving right along. <laughs> All right, so I have the Myrtle. Mur- Mur- Myrtle. Myrtle. <laughs> Damn it, Myrtle. <laughs> Come back. Okay. The murder of Leslie Mazera and Adrian Insogna. Mm. There are lots of names today, so yes. bear with me. Um, so in 2004, three young women shared um, a home in Napa Valley, California. The three women who lived here were Leslie Mazara, Adrian Insogna, and Lauren Mianza. And they were visited occasionally by Adrian's friends. But when when they moved in, um, they had a big celebration with their Adrian's friends mainly Ben Katz, Lily Prudholm, and her fiance Eric Koppel. So that was in the summer, and we'll jump forward now to Halloween, which is our topic for today. Mm-hmm. And so on October thirty first, Halloween night, the three roommates spent the evening handing out candy to little kids in their neighborhood. Shortly before eleven, they decided to call it a night for some, their last night. Ooh. Around 2 a.m., Lauren woke up to her dog barking, and she saw the security light turn on outside of the house. At first, she just dismissed it because Adrian had a lot of cats, and she thought they'd be <laughs> tripping the sensor. Or perhaps it was Leslie's new boyfriend who had taken to spending the night sometimes. So Lauren goes back to sleep and was woken again, but this time by the sound of blood-curdling screams. Mm. Lauren went outside of her bedroom door when suddenly she heard a man rush down the stairs terrified she ran into the backyard where she hid shaking with fear she heard the man leave through the kitchen windows and summoning courage she went back into the house to look in on the safety of her two roommates she found leslie face down in a pool of blood and adrian crouched behind leslie's bed alive but suffering multiple stab wounds oh man lauren ran into the kitchen and tried to call 911 but the landline was dead she retrieved her cell phone from her bedroom and called 911, but drove away as she did not know if there was anyone left hiding in the house. Emergency services arrived to pronounce Leslie dead and to work on poor Adrian, but she would die before reaching the hospital. Oh. And the community was shocked to learn about the murders of these young, successful women, and the police struggled to find any leads. They questioned over a thousand people, took hundreds of DNA samples. But finally, in September 2005, almost a year after the dreadful murder, 
police re- released a statement saying that they had matched DNA to that found on cigarettes collected from the crime scene. Ah, <sighs> sorry. Oh, man. <laughs> so these, another thing about these cigarettes were that they were a rare brand called Camel Turkish Gold. And days later, with this new information, Eric Koppel, if mm. you'll remember from the beginning, Lily Prodham's now um, husband, they're now married, <gasps> turned turned himself in, confessing to the murders. Friends and family of Eric had recognized his brand immediately and made the connection. To this day, the motive for murder is not clear. Some say Eric and Lily had broken up shortly before the murders took place and that he was reeling in depression and had taken up drinking and had done it in, you know, an alcoholic rage, maybe. And so Eric was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and pled guilty to both. Oh, my God. So random. Oh my god, that's a crazy one. Yeah, that one's really random. <sighs> okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next up, um, <laughs> Lisk family murders. Oh yeah. Okay. You heard this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, 16-year-old Devin Griffin arrived back at his Toledo, Ohio home the day after Halloween in 2010 to what he believed was nothing more than a gruesome Halloween prank. The bodies of his 53-year-old father, William, 46-year-old mother, Susan, and 23-year-old brother, Derek Griffin, were all laid in their beds, covered in blood, but this was no prank. They had all been shot and bludgeoned to death. 24-year-old William Jr., the oldest son in the Lisk family, was arrested 170 miles from the crime scene. It appears William Jr. had repeated run-ins with the law enforcement that included jail time and mental health treatment. During the trial, the court heard that he had sexually assaulted Mrs. Lisk just a week before he murdered his family in cold blood. Mm -hmm. William Jr. had no explanation why he killed them all blaming his actions on poor mental health. He told the jury, I loved my dad very much, and it makes me feel sick every time I think about what I did. I can't really explain why this all had to happen, but I think most of it had to do with my mental illness. He is currently serving a life sentence at Ottawa County Jail, Port Clinton, Ohio. Whoa. Yes. That's another heavy one. Heavy one. Very heavy. Um, the next one is the one that had me most upset. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it or know anything about the toolbox killers. Do you know I don't anything? know if I've heard about the toolbox killers. So this, this could be a whole, like there's so much information on this, um, because there are audio tapes and I didn't listen to them because I didn't really want to. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, but they're there and there's a lot of detail out there for those of you who want to know more. Um, But so I've given you, you know, just the basic information here. Um, So the toolbox killers are um, serial killings that happened in 1975. Um, So I'll tell you a little bit about those two guys and what happened. Okay. So this is about Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. So, both of these men had really rough childhoods. We'll start with Bittaker. Um, he had a rough childhood and was not unknown to police and had been arrested many times growing up for theft. Um, he spent some time at the California Youth Authority until the age of 18. Um, Norris also had an uneasy childhood and dropped out of school to join the Navy and was deployed to Vietnam where he was stationed but did not actually serve um, active duty. 
And he was charged with numerous sexual offenses before these serial killings actually happen. Um, and these two men met up at California's men, the California men's colony, which is a state prison and chatting, which they had a lot of time to do. Um, the men discovered that they both shared an interest in sexual violence and planned to do just that when they became free. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Great way to make friends. Bonding. <laughs> yeah. So these men, uh, were released three months apart and soon met up to move forward with their plan to kidnap and rape young girls. So Bitteker purchased a white cargo van, a windowless van with a large passenger side door, which they could open and snatch the victims. And I wonder if this is where we get that image, because there is an image of the van, Mm -hmm. um, you know, of the scary white van trolling a neighborhood. I don't know if this is the first instance that that happened or if this is a common thing. But, um, these men ended up nicknaming their van Murder Mac. And there's oh, images I, I can put on the website for you guys to see of this van. Um, oh, wait, is this so, where the, the whole tool thing comes in? Because they're freaking tools? Yes. So <laughs> I don't go into how they use the tools, but basically they use household tools um, to torture and kill their victims. No! Yeah. So from February to June... Of 1979, the men practiced picking up hitchhikers and tried to perfect their methods of luring girls into their grasp. So they picked up over 20 girls. They didn't, they didn't assault or they claim to have not assaulted any of them. They were just practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually they put all their practice into action. Um, their first victim was Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. She was 15 years old, and they took her on June 24th, 1979. She was raped and killed by strangulation, and they left her body in a canyon. Um, The second victim was Andrea Hall, 18 years old, July of 1979, raped and uh, strangled, and they threw her body off a cliff. Jesus. Third and fourth victim were two girls who they found, I think it was at a bus stop, Jackie uh, Gilliam, 15, and Leah Lamp, 13. No. Both were raped and tortured, held captive for two days and strangled, and they also left their bodies in the wilderness. Um, fifth victim was, I guess, lucky, if you look at it that way. Shirley Sanders was raped but happened to escape before she was killed. Um, at the time, she was unable to identify her attackers and or the license plate on um, the license plate number on the van. So she wasn't able to help at that time. Um, And the sixth and final victim is Shirley Ledford, um, who was 16. On October 31st, 1979, she was taken um, leading a Halloween party and they raped and strangled her and left her body on the lawn for people to find. So their previous victims, they, they threw into the wilderness hoping that they wouldn't be found, but they purposely um, left Shirley where she could be found. She left, they were, she was left on the lawn of somebody's property. So how are these men caught? Um, Norris wasn't able to keep his mouth shut. And he told a friend that he had met a former inmate of the California's men colony, what he and Bitteker had done over the last year. And this inmate, who's a smart man, fortunately, consulted with his own lawyer, who convinced him to turn the two guys in. 
So thankfully, the police picked up Norris for marijuana possession, which, of course, was a parole violation Mm. just before Thanksgiving of that year. That's 1979. And Bitteker was arrested for the rape and abduction of the victim in Gotten Way. That was Shirley Sanders. And with some digging and interrogation, both men were charged with several counts of kidnapping, rape, murder, assault, and more. And I'm happy to say they're both still in prison. Good. Yeah. (sighs) That's awful. Yeah. There's very detailed um, trial, you know, records. And again, I said they were sick enough to, I mean, they were sick enough to do this anyways, but there's audio tapes of many of these killings that they did and i'm sure they did play them during the trial they recorded the women and or the girls Mm -hmm. i should say oh my god Mm -hmm. yeah so um we won't be sharing those on the website but um there's lots more information out there on this particular uh serial killing yowza okay yeah so um happy halloween okay um next up (laughs) (laughs) Maria Ciasella. Okay, so this is a very fun name to say, at least. Yeah. When Maria Ciasella, 17, set out on the evening of October 31st, 1981, she could not possibly dream that she was also about to encounter a real-life monster. Mm-hmm. At around 6 p.m., she told her father she was going out and would return around midnight. Soon after the clock struck 12... She was seen walking along Route 88 toward her home in Brick, New Jersey. A patrolman on a radio call spotted her and made a mental note to offer her a lift on his return. He was back within 10 minutes, but by that time she had already vanished. It would be about a year and a half before anyone would find out what what became of her on that Halloween night. On April 20th, 1983, it was reported that police found Ciasella's corpse cut into three pieces and buried in the yard of a run-down blue house in the Charleston section of Staten Island. She was not alone. The shallow grave held the remains of another girl, Deborah Osborne, 17. She had disappeared from a Point Pleasant, New Jersey bar the previous April. The house belonged to a bewildered elderly old woman, elderly old woman? Elderly woman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Now I'm going to butcher this name. Sally B... Beganwald, Beganwald, 68, mother of the key suspect in the killings of the two girls, as well as three other murders in New Jersey. Working working on a tip, police ended up at the Asbury Park house occupied by Richard, 42, and his wife. In September of 1984, he pled guilty to the murders of Ciasella and Osborne and got 30-year Two 30-year prison terms. He died at the age of 67 of natural causes, on March 10th, 2008. Sick. Sicko. Sicko. Um, There's also a lot of information on, like Kelly said, because these are serial killers, they have like... um, uh, Trial records. Yeah, there's trial records. There's, you know, past history of arrests Mm -hmm. and stuff that led up to, like he did a number of things, um, was in and out of prison throughout his life. So if there is stuff that you, if you do want to further your investigation on these people, um, we will have um, snippets of, um, you know, when we do the episodes on our website. So you will be able Mm -hmm. to check them out if you're interested. We'll help you check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is your last one? This is the last one I'm going to share for today. Okay. And this one is a bit weird because there's 
opposite to the last one I gave you. There's really not a lot of information, which leaves it like leaves you asking some questions. So this is the murder of Martha Moxley. Okay. Now I've heard of this one and this one is so interesting to me. And do you agree? It's kind of like, what? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, Martha Moxley went out the night of October 30th, 1975 to spend the evening participating with her friends, you know, mischief night, I think they call it. Do you have another name for it? Devil's night, maybe the night before Halloween. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. We just call it the night before Halloween. (laughs) Oh, no. Maybe you don't do it there. Um, You like, you get a, do pranks, throw toilet paper on people's houses. Oh, we do that any day of the year. (laughs) Any day of the year. Okay. California. Got it. Okay. (laughs) All right. So reports state that Martha was last seen with her neighbor, Tom Skakel. And you've heard of this case. I hope I'm saying that right. Skakel. I mean, who is sure. Yeah, sounds right. <laughs> a boy who lived across the street who she was friendly with and his brother, Michael Skakel. And Martha's friends last saw her with Tom behind a fence, as teenagers do, I guess, at 9.30 that night. And Martha turned up the next day, Halloween day, in her family's backyard, dead beneath a tree. And the reports say that her pants and underwear were pulled down, but there was no... The report also claims she was not sexually assaulted, mm-hmm. and, but she had been beaten and stabbed with a golf club that the police were able to track back to the Skakel family across the street. Not sure how you get stabbed with a golf club, but mm. anyways. Um, so they questioned, they ended up questioning a live-in tutor who lived in the Skakel household with no result. Um, Tom was questioned with no result and Michael was questioned with no, no result and the case goes cold. So this is 1975. Mm-hmm. And so there's a few times it pops up in the nineties, but in 1998, an investigator was assigned to the case and told to review the collected information and word comes out that the night of Martha's murder, Michael climbed into a tree near her window mass and masturbated around midnight. So he, would have been the last one to see her, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas everybody else said she was with Tom at 9.30. Mm-hmm. So a three-week trial, tri- tri- trial, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a three-week trial in 2002, and this trial puts Michael in jail for over a decade. And the story was that, you know, poor rich kid with famous connections, he was the nephew of Robert F. Kennedy Mm -hmm. was upset and decided to kill Martha over some childish affair, you know? Mm -hmm. And in 2013, Michael was released on bail basically for the reason that his lawyer did a crap job (laughs) helping him out. And to this day, he's still out on bail. So what do you think? Do you think he did it? I don't know, but there's... What do you think? I want to hear what you think first because you've said you've heard about I've heard the case before. Um, I've seen... I've seen like a lifetime movie on it. And mm-hmm, I've also mm-hmm. seen, they had a, um, an episode of cold case on it as well. So I'm like, because it might be just the way they painted the story or the narrative. Um, right. I very much think that Michael did it. Okay. What did they say? Um, the reasons for him doing it was, um, what? I think they were, I think both brothers were in love with her. Right. And she was with Tom and Michael. Yes was upset about that. So you can go and I'll include a link to this on the website. There are links to her diary that you can read um, excerpts of from a month or so before where she just talks about, and they're just kids hanging out in the neighborhood in groups, right? Right. Just getting up to whatever. 
um, her flirting with Tom, but she feels that Michael is flirting with her friend. I think it's Jackie. And, um, so Michael approaches her one day and says, look, I know you don't like Tom. It's like, oh, I like him as a friend. Like this whole teenage thing. I like him as a friend. I can be friends with him. And she says, but what about Jackie? You keep leading her on. So there was some kind of interaction before, um, the murder had happened about a month before that people thought, well, maybe this is why he did it. Mm-hmm. He was jealous of his brother. Mm-hmm. But I think like the brother tried to help cover it up and yes, it was like the right. whole thing. But yeah, it's definitely an interesting story and, and worth reading about. Yeah, we'll definitely include those links so you can look into it. Okay, well, this is my last one, and it's about a nun being strangled, which is very sad. Hmm. Um, But there is a lot of um, information that goes along with this one, so I'm just giving you the basics. So Mm -hmm. if you do want to look into this one, this one, again, is a very interesting story. Um, Okay, so on October 31st, 1981, a man broke into the St. Francis Convent in Amarillo, Texas. He then would rape, strangle, and stab Sister Tadea Benz, who was 76 years old, no. uh, killing her. Her body would be discovered that morning by another sister when Sister Benz didn't attend 6.30 a.m. Mass. Witnesses claimed to have seen a man with dark skin and black curly hair outside the convent the night of the murder. After examining evidence, it appeared this crime was matched closely to another that occurred on July 9th, close to Amarillo. A woman named Narni Cox Bryson, 77, was raped and murdered in her home. The evidence collected from both scenes, including DNA, led police to search for a Cuban refugee they suspected had raped and killed both women. Now, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this right. Leonacio mm-hmm. Leon, <laughs> Perez Rueda, a Cuban refu- refugee who was living in Amarillo at the time of the murders. Um, months before the murders, there had been break-ins and rapes across the city where DNA of a Hispanic man was left behind. As with a lot of serial rapists, they start with peeping, move on to raping, then murder. Mm-hmm. Eventually in 2005, he was arrested and charged with the murder of Narnie Cox Bryson after police ran the old DNA from the 1981 case and got a hit. Again, it was the black hairs found at the scene of both murders that had matched back in the night in the 80s. And in 2004, they had matched that DNA to Rueda. To find out why he was only charged with one murder and not for the nuns, please mm-hmm. check out our website for details on this incredibly tragic story. And I will give you a hint. Somebody okay. was tried for the nuns case and found guilty that did not do it. Okay. So it's definitely something to look into. Okay. So the Twitter post we're going to talk about today is a bit different because we're going to mention a follow, somebody who you should be following. Kelly, you're familiar with this. It's the pig at slapped ham. Slapped ham. Yes. I I sit and and watch them on YouTube all the time. (laughs) Yeah. So you can really get sucked into their uh, Twitter page. Sucked in, and he posts things every day, multiple times a day, that will lead back to their website or the YouTube videos. Um, eerie videos you can watch, some pictures, and it's really fun to scroll through and check them out. And you know, you ask yourself some questions. What was your favorite thing you've seen so far? Well, I've seen a lot. I mostly yeah. go for the ghost stuff because you know me. Yes, but they yes. do have like um, 
like weird mystery kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I love it. I love it all. Well, we can post uh, one or two of their things on our website and hopefully people can check it out for themselves. Sounds good. Hey guys, if you have any questions or comments about this episode or any episode you've heard, please go to anchor.fm slash beneath the staircase and leave us a voice message. You may be featured on one of our future episodes. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. Please join us next week when we discuss more spooky tales of the paranormal. We'll see you beneath the staircase.